Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome. We're so glad to have you with us here this evening on Ask Herbal Health Expert Susan Weed, a two-hour radio show each Tuesday night. Herbal medicine is people's medicine, simple, safe, effective. Please bring your curiosity and health questions. Susan will enlighten, surprise, and delight you. I know most of you know Susan Weed already. She's my mom, so I know her. But for those of you who have not yet met Susan, I'd like to share, she is the author of the Wise Woman Herbal series, wonderful books on women's health and herbal medicine, including Wise Woman Herbal for the Childbearing Year, Breast Cancer Breast Health! Exclamation Point, The Wise Woman Way, Healing Wise, The Wise Woman Herbal, New Menopausal Years, The Wise Woman Way, down there, sexual and reproductive health, the wise woman way, and abundantly well. Seven medicines, the wise woman way, the newest book in the wise woman herbal series. So exciting! In addition to being the editor at Ashtree Publishing and writing her books, Susan is the director of the Wise Woman Center in Woodstock, New York. The Wise Woman Center is open to the public. On appointment-only basis, she offers weekend workshops, intensives, and apprenticeships throughout the season. Susan is also available to you online via wisewomanmentor.com. There you can go and view her weekly e-zine. You can subscribe to receive a notification via email each week, or you could join her mentorship program. Susan also offers distance learning correspondence courses and online courses at thewisewomanschool.com. Join us there for colorful, instructive, easy video courses, including Easy Herbal Medicine with Susan Weed, Happy Knees, a Cancer Diagnosis, Adaptogens for Long Life, and Abundantly Well Companion Course. WiseWomanSchool.com. You can also just go to her website, SusanWeed.com, where you will find thousands of pages online with recipes, articles, art features, and so much more. Well, for now, let's see what Susan has to share with us this evening. Thank you, and welcome, Susan. Thank you, Justine, and welcome, Rebecca. Hello, Susan. How are you this evening? I am enjoying what we call Indian summer. There's all kinds of myths about why it's called Indian summer, but it's a period after the first frosts 
where it gets gloriously warm. We're back in T-shirts and we're barefoot. Oh, wow. Right, with temperatures <laughs> during the day in the 70s and at night in the 50s. Mm. Nice. So it's wonder wonderful time. The apprentices went out to dig some roots this weekend. They dug mm. up some poke root. They were goggle-eyed at how huge the poke root is. And they dug mm-hmm. up some burdock root, which is always a big effort. And I had them clear some metal off the compost pile, so they dug up some nettle root and they made tinctures of each one of those. Oh, nice. <laughs> Sounds good, yeah. Yeah, it's uh, cold and rainy here, and I just got a cord of wood delivered, so I'm super happy about that, and I have my fires going. <laughs> ah, nothing cozier than a cup of herbal brew next to a fire. Yeah, and this wood stove at this house, too, there's a flat top on it, so I can actually boil water and if I wanted to cook on it and um, make all kinds of herbal brews on it. So. Oh, yum, yum. I, my last house, there was an insert in the wall, and there was none of that going on. So right, I'd be able right, to right. Utilize One of the things the I like to do on my flat-topped wood stove is to put a potato or two on it on mm. Something that raises it just a little bit off the surface of the stove, if it's the stove is really hot. My stove is baffled. So while the surface gets hot, it usually doesn't get, like, super hot. And then put a stainless steel bowl over it, and it bakes it. Ooh, yum. That's a great idea. Mm Mm-hmm. And then I know that you like to do, like, the raw garlic on your potatoes this time of year. That's one of the ways that you eat raw garlic. Yes, if but I'm going to eat raw garlic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I like the honeyed garlic, and we broke into a quart jar of um, garlic that garlic honey that had been made a long time ago, and it was black. It's oh, wow. so delicious. Yum. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my, mine uh, just makes it... I, I make like a quart of it, and it, that's usually what lasts me for the whole year, and it barely makes it the whole the whole year until it's time to make it again. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yum, yum. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So good. Good time of the year to make garlic honey, too. Yeah. And don't even have to peel the garlic. I know people always ask me why I don't peel it. Like if I like on social media, I'll take a picture and, and you know, post about it and – um, it's so much less work to not peel it, and it looks really nice in the jar. And it does. I mean, I think that the peels are probably provide some sort of nutrition in there too. You know, like because we're so obsessed with taking the peels off of everything in the U.S. It seems like, but in in other cultures, it's, they always utilize like the whole the whole of everything, like every part of the vegetable or whatever it is, the animal. <laughs> also suspect that there are more soil bacteria on the peel. Mm-hmm. And True, because it all hides in the crevices. Getting there. more soil bacteria, I think, is it would be a very important health quest for anyone who doesn't have easy access to it. And garlic peel might be an easy access to soil bacteria. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah. I think we're going to hear more and more about how important having soil bacteria 
is. You know, when they did that kind of survey of the microbiome, they noticed that Americans were very deficient in soil bacteria in their guts as compared to other people. Yeah, I had at one time seen uh, an American or a person from the U.S. and compared to somebody in um, South America and like their their internal, it was like comparing like all of like the bacteria and like pathogens and everything in their body. And like the person from South America, it's like their whole body is full of it. And then the person in the U.S. just had it in like certain spots, like tiny pockets of of uh, pathogens and bacteria. The other person was like completely made up of all of this, you know, their whole like completely living organism of many different. <laughs> Organisms, I guess, yeah. I'm missing something somehow. Mm-hmm. So pathogens and bacteria. Pathogens are things that make us sick. Yeah, but isn't it true that you can have, like, you can still have, like, different types of bacteria that would somewhat seem, you know, like if you have a maybe like a, then they wouldn't be a pathogen. A beneficial bacteria. What's that? Then they would not be a pathogen. A pathogen only makes you sick. Okay. Well, I guess I'm saying it wrong then. <laughs> no, I didn't say you were wrong, and but maybe mm-hmm. what you mean is that the, that I'm not quite sure. Again, because all human beings have bacteria in their gut mm-hmm. and throughout their gut, and all human beings have bacteria on their skin. Right. I think what I mean is that it can be considered pathogenic. Like, I think, you know, like in the U.S., uh, like with so many of the functional medicine and, you know, natural, like they're they're so obsessed with taking out like what they consider as pathogenic bacteria and um, they kind of base their whole kind of practice on that. And so I think that that's what, yeah. Short toxins. Toxins. Right, toxins. Mm-hmm. Right, of all different kinds, right? And yeah. you know, it's interesting when I certainly when I started studying and learning about what was called alternative medicine. Then there was a lot of talk about parasites. Parasites, right? And while you yeah. still hear that now and then, that has pretty much calmed down and been replaced with toxins. You know, all these chemicals that are in your body. Yeah, I don't know. I think I I still hear it from the people quite thing, a yeah. bit, actually. Yeah, uh, yeah, especially like if people go to functional medicine practitioners, that's like a big mm-hmm. thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And like also, I mean, I know some people that do like hydrocolon therapy and like all of that stuff, and that's what they're, you know, that's like their selling point is to get the it's rid of the parasites. parasites out. Yeah. Right. <laughs> But with something like, you know, garlic honey, you know, instead of, like, getting rid of, you're feeding, like, the beneficial bacteria. And so you're building, like, a more dynamic, you know, uh, microbiome, like, yes. with all that inulin and, yeah. Yeah, and, and what I would say would be more to the point, what I've seen in the studies is that healthier people and people who have more contact with nature have a greater variety of bacteria on their skin and in their gut. Mm-hmm. So that the, if there are pathogens there, they don't have much of a chance. 
because there's yeah, so many other things. Yeah, I definitely feel like that. I feel like there. I have like more of a resilience. See, like in my kids too. You know, like that. You know, things bounce off of us differently because of you know our being in nature and working with plants and soil a lot. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. And we're not mm-hmm. we're not talking about eating dirt. We're talking about bacteria. Um, and they can. Yes, I do those. It can be on garlic skin, which is where we started. Mhm. I do, though. I will lick the dirt when I, like, have something from my biodynamic, you know, because I know how, like, careful they are about building their soil. But when I do have, like, you know, like a leak or something and I'm cutting it up from, like, the biodynamic growers, I will lick the soil off of it because I know oh, that it's such good soil, you know? <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah. Well, that really goes along with our guest tonight who is Charlotte Markey, a professor of psychology and the author of three books. And all of the books are about loving yourself and not being food phobic. And we were just sitting here at dinner talking about how health and longevity is linked to having a wide and varied diet. And how using herbs improves the variety in your diet. When you go out and pick plants to make a wild salad, how many different plants do you often pick? Oh, a lot. I mean, it depends on uh, the time of year. But, I mean, even now, probably like 10 or 15. You could exactly, right? Even there. now, easily mm-hmm. a dozen different plants. And in the height of the summer, there was one apprentice group who wanted to really impress Jujana Budapest, and they made her a salad with 30 different plants in it. Hmm. Nice. <laughs> Very good. Yeah. Yeah. So, wow. That, you know, just that right there that you're eating all of those different plants in your salad really boosts the, uh, your flexibility and your immunity. Mm-hmm. So I am excited to talk with Charlotte Markey about why smart people don't diet. And about her most recent book for girls, Love Yourself and Grow Up Fearless of the Body Image book. Hmm. That will be at 9 o'clock. Stick with us or come back and check out Charlotte Markey. Do we have anybody with questions tonight? Yeah, I have um, someone that messaged me and asked if I would um, ask this question to you because she doesn't have a phone at this time. And so... Um, if you don't mind reading the question first, we just have a few callers right now anyway. Okay. Okay. So she says, I had a large filling put into my tooth about six months ago, and it has just recently fell out. There is now a large hole in my molar, which I will be getting repaired soon. The dentist said that if I had problems with it, I would probably need a root canal since it is so deep. I'm not sure if it fell out due to a developing cavity or due to me clenching my jaw due to recent stress. Is there any way to avoid a root canal if there is a deep cavity in that tooth? I have been building up my health, building my health back up for the past six years, recovering from a very restrictive diet and eating disorder, now eating a very broad diet and drinking nourishing herbal infusions. I am also using yarrow tincture as a dentifrice 
flossing and taking echinacea tincture diluted in water at least twice per day. I also regularly use small peeled organ grape roots to physically rub and deep clean my teeth next to the gums. This has been a big help to my gum health. Any other tips for dental and gum health would be much appreciated. Thank you. I appreciate everything you both do to share knowledge so much. And she also says here, um, also my dentist told me not to use tinctures undiluted directly in the mouth because it can cause oral cancer. I ignored this warning. Is that a concern at all? Well, let's start with that first. That's the reason I don't use grain alcohol when I make my tinctures. Mm -hmm. So if you're using a tincture in your mouth made with 100-proof vodka, it's not going to cause oral cancer. But if you're using a tincture made with grain alcohol, yes, it could. It's not a given, and you might, you know, when, usually what I do when somebody says something like that is I say, oh, how common is that? That alcohol causes oral cancer. Is that true of everyone who drinks? After all, it's a very small amount of tincture, isn't it? Are we disconnected? Oh, no, you're asking me. Um, oh, yeah, okay. So are you only putting like a, I mean, I usually only put like a drop or two, and sometimes I'll put it in exactly. a spray bottle. Exactly, that's what I'm saying. It's a tiny mouth. amount of tincture yeah. compared yeah. to the um, tiny amount of alcohol, even if it is grain alcohol, um, compared to what would be in a mixed drink. Well, even shots, I mean, people take that, and are your, is your dentist going to tell you not to go out with your friends and take shots or whatever, you know? But, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, and I think that all the things that um, she's doing sound good to me. Mm-hmm. The there seems to be two kind of big dental myths. One is that there's something wrong with having amalgam fillings. And if we got to talk, I would ask her if it was a plastic filling or an amalgam filling, as I do not find that the plastic fillings work as well. And I would much rather um, have mercury in my mouth than have plastic in my mouth when it comes right down to it. Um, But no one has ever shown me that having mercury in a filling in my mouth exposes me to any mercury at all while drilling them out exposes me to a huge amount of mercury. And I have met quite a few people whose health has been absolutely ruined by having their mercury uh, amalgam fillings. There's a little mercury, not much, but enough. So that when they're drilled out, you actually ingest it. Whereas when it's in there as a filling, um, it can bond more. The other big myth is that there's something wrong with root canal. And I have not been able to kind of trace that back and and find out who started that or or what they think is going on there. Simply put, your tooth has roots 
and there are nerves in the roots of those teeth. When bacteria and acid eat through the enamel of the tooth, and the tooth is infected inside, in the soft part of the tooth, it's very easy for the infection to go down into the root of the tooth. Think about, you know, like the classic tooth sign. And it's the part of the tooth you see, and then equally as big as the part of the tooth you see, there's those legs or, or you know, little fingers sticking down, the roots of the tooth. And when infection gets down in the root of the tooth, it can go into the bloodstream and actually kill you. It can weaken your heart. It can do a lot of really bad things, including, remember in the comic books, they always had the kid with the toothache and their cheek was swollen up and they had, they had like a bandage tied around their head? Well, that's what happens if those bacteria get down into the root. And I'm not talking about occasionally. I've personally seen it happen to quite a few people who, for some reason or another, were frightened to have a root canal and let the infection in their tooth get down into the root and literally their cheek blew up like they had swallowed and put an orange in their cheek. And then they had to have the root canal and more treatment because of the damage that had been done. So what is a root canal? The root of the tooth is open inside and because it is open it's possible to put a small metal file into the root of the tooth and in that doing so extract and get rid of the nerve tissue. This then allows the tooth to be sealed because there's no more organic matter there and the infection can't get down in there and can't travel from there to the rest of your body, providing a safer, longer life for you. And this is, you know, it's not just a root canal, especially on a molar. There are four roots on a molar. Each one of them has a small steel file that is put in there to remove the nerve. What I've heard people say is, well, the file can break off and lodge in there. And that's certainly true, and I don't want to make light of it. But on the other hand, I don't want to make large of it. People are walking around with much bigger hunks of metal in their body with no particular problems, I'm thinking of people who've had shrapnel or explosive things where the pieces are just too difficult to get out, as well as people who have medical devices, some of which have metal in them. So um, one takes care to choose somebody who's skilled and who does root canals. In other words, if your dentist is saying, oh, this is bad and it needs a root canal, and I'll do the root canal, and that dentist is a general dentist, probably not the best place to have your root canal done. Better to go to a dentist who's 
specializes in root canals. That way, you know you're getting the best treatment, and it's always good to ask around. You can ask other people, you know, have they had a root canal? What dentist have they gone to? Um, In most communities, um, it's pretty easy to find out who does really good work and who you want to avoid. That said, if you're asking if there's anything else that you could do, the only other thing that I could think of, because you talked about grinding your jaw, is to use some hypericum tincture before you go to sleep and see if that keeps you from grinding your teeth while you're sleeping. And the green blessings to her. Thank you for answering that. And I'll remind the rest of the callers to press 1 if they have a question for Susan. And uh, we'll go to our first caller here. Um, There's a couple 845 numbers, and this one is a 876 prefix. Oh, that's me. Hi, Susan. Hi. Hi, this is Debbie. How are you? I'm doing well. What beautiful weather we're having. Oh, I love it. Yes. Um, I had a question. Um, I was reading in in your um, book, Abundantly Well, about the seven um, different infusions that um, you alternate with, and, and I've been doing that for a while. And I wanted to ask... If I'm having um, an issue with, um, well, I'm having an issue with my skin being very sensitive on my back, and it's maybe spreading a little bit around, and feels kind of like burning or sensitive to clothes. In a case like that, would it be good to um, maybe concentrate on one of the one of those? herbs until um, that um, I heal that problem? No. Oh. Okay. So I usually rotate through five herbs, singing nettle, oat straw, red clover, comfrey leaf, and linden. And the other two that you're using are? Um, The other is... um, It's the one for inflammation. Linden. Oh, you said that, didn't you? I did. You did. Wait a minute. I'm going to look in in your book. Okay. Uh, I guess hawthorn. Okay. And and um and sometimes mullein, but I I think I would only do that. If I start to have respiratory problems. Usually. Yeah. Okay, that sounds good. So six rather than seven. Oh, you're right. Yes. That's that's fine. That sounds wonderful. And you're oh. using the hawthorn berries or the hawthorn leaf and flower? I'm, I'm using the hawthorn. Um, it, I got it from Mountain Rose and... Uh-huh. Um, and I'm it's asking a tincture. you if it's leaf and flower or berry. It's the berry. It's the berry, okay. But it also has um, uh, some motherwort in it. 
What? I'm taking it for what? high blood pressure. What do you mean it has some motherwort in it? It's I thought a, we were talking about nourishing herbal infusions. No, this isn't an infusion. This is um, a tincture. So maybe well, um, I'll just ask you what herbs you were using for infusion. Oh, okay. No, so then then you I'm said just you using, were using seven herbs that you rotated through for infusion. I think I'm I'm wrong. Let's see, one, two, three, four, five. I'm using five. Okay, and then you're taking hawthorn tincture that has some other herbs mixed in with it. I know that it's not that you don't like that, but that's all they had. And it seems as though it's you bringing my... Like, my YouTube where I make tincture with the dried hawthorn berries? Mm-hmm. I'll look at it. But I, I don't think, honestly, so it's very, that it's probably going to happen. Easy to make hawthorn berry tincture. Oh. And it's ready in six weeks, and it will cost you about maybe... $30 to make a quart of tincture. Wow. And I have already had the vodka. Right. And you have 100-proof vodka, right? I have to check. Do not use 80-proof. Okay. And, um, and with taking the Hawthorne um, Berry Tincture... Once you get your blood pressure down, then you Hawthorne can stop does not taking lower it. Lower blood pressure; it normalizes blood pressure. Mhm. It okay. improves the efficiency of the heart. It keeps the heart beating steadily. So once you get your blood pressure down, do you not want those benefits anymore? I do want them. That's so that answers the day. question. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you take it every day? Of course. Oh. Okay. And and as far as the skin sensitivity, taking just keep rotating those five infusions and and that should help. Mhm. Mhm. Okay. Oh. With a sudden onset of the skin sensitivity. I would ask myself, have I been in contact with anything that could cause my skin to be irritated, like poison ivy or um, fleas? Um, it's that time of the year where the fleas are jumping on the animals and coming in the house and jumping in your bed. I don't think it's that. You know what I think it is? Stress. Uh-huh. Uh-huh, I hear you. <laughs> it's been very stressful. Right, so that, that, then, you know, then that's the next thing I say, you know. In addition to those, you know, direct causes. Are there indirect causes? Right. But also as a direct cause, I also ask about, you know, have I changed my the product that I wash my sheets with or the product that I wash my clothes with? All of those things can cause a sudden onset of skin sensitivity. Mm-hmm. And yes, it could be stress. So, well, what kinds to. of things do you use that you find helpful to de-stress yourself? 
Well, I'm, um, I found a wonderful a meditation Zoom group, and I'm, I'm joining them every day. Good for you. And, yeah, it's really good. And um, I'm trying to do um, breath work, especially the um, alternate nostril breathing. Another excellent choice. I'm um, going for a long walk, trying not to watch the news, but have not been that successful. Ah, ha, ha, ha. (laughs) (laughs) Oh. Yes, you know, I often forget how horrible life is for people who watch the news. So you don't watch it? I don't own a television. Oh, that's the best. The last thing I saw on TV was Kennedy's assassination. Wow. Okay. Well, I'm going to try. Elizabeth Ross taught us that you can use and benefit from any stress except the stress of a loud noise or a fast motion. She said you can learn through the things that you're doing, through meditation, through walking, through the, you can learn to utilize any stress in your life, but you will never have a defense or a use for loud noises and fast motions. I know I was out yeah. walking the other evening and somebody set off a firecracker or something and I thought I was gonna like gonna be hanging from the moon. I was so startled. Wow. And what is television if not loud noises and fast motion? Okay. So it even even a good television show, even a pleasant television show is still loud noise and fast motion. And that triggers the part of our nervous system that gets us ready for danger. Mm. The part of our nervous system that says produce cortisol, get the blood away from the extremities, tighten down now, bad things could be happening, as opposed Mm. to part of our nervous system that says, wow, it's really safe and fun to be alive. And look at all these wonderful people and all this good food. All right. So but that's I'm going to try for, not right? to watch it. Yes. That, that part of you that you have felt and that you know and that you want to live in that says, oh, life is fun. Right. It's not fun on the news. So don't watch it. All right. I'm going to really try hard. Most of my teachers have told me that trying is lying. (laughs) I'm going to do it. I'll do it. You're going to do it. That's different, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Remember that the news is men's gossip, but gossip is women's news. Mm. Okay. 
Let it go. Take a break from it. Okay. And 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 can I ask you why is the reason that you um, suggest to continue alternating the infusions when you have a specific problem that that seems because like it the, might because the infusions are one of the foundations of health. Mm-hmm. But the foundations of health are the first four medicines, and they're part of lifestyle medicine. And when you have a problem, you're more likely to go to some alternative medicine. So at that point, you might want to use a specific herb as a tincture for your problem. But we're not going to stop eating or walking or doing any of the foundational things. Okay. Because when we're curing something, when we're using alternative medicine or pharmaceutical medicine or deep medicine, we're causing harm. Mm Mm-hmm. And we need to keep doing the foundational medicines to recover from the harm we're causing ourselves in pursuit of curing or staying alive. And because the foundational medicines are just that. You don't say, now that the house is built, I'll pull the foundation out from under it. You right. don't say, wow, there's a leak in the roof, so I'm going to not have a foundation in my house. Okay. All right. Well, Susan, Nourishing thank you. infusions are not treatments. They're one of the basic ways of being healthy and living along. Mm-hmm. It won't hurt if you don't drink them, but the more you do, the more you get. All right. Well, Susan, thank you very much. It's been very helpful to me. Thank you for your questions. I'm so glad you called. Green blessings. Good night. Green blessings. Bye-bye. The next caller is coming from the 570 area code. Hello. Hi. Hi, Susan. I do have an ongoing case of tinea versicolor all over my abdomen. And um, I also have like a half dollar size that appeared that is some kind of tinea but is raised and red and itchy and I think I actually might have killed most of it with baking soda and vinegar just kind of burning it off Um, but I was wondering what else I could do for my skin oh how distressing (laughs) really upsetting when these things happen to us Hmm. I don't think that you caused yourself a major burn with the baking soda and vinegar, did you? No. Mm-mm. Okay, good. Just, All right. It's not like you put acid on it. very exciting. No. <laughs> okay. I, I mean, yeah, you know, vinegar is acetic acid, but, you know, it's not like some big acid that, like, <laughs> is going to really cause a wound. Um, 
I remembering correctly that tinea is a fungus? Yes. So you have a fungal infection. Mm-hmm. The herbs that are thought to be antifungal on contact, in other words, not taking them internally, not systemic, but on contact, are horsetail mm-hmm. and golden seal. Mm-hmm. So I have seen people use sprays or creams of the golden seal, like a tincture mm-hmm. spray of golden seal, on the area morning or night. And with the horsetail, I've seen people make an infusion of the horsetail, which lasts in the refrigerator for a long time, and to either, you know, do a wet compress with the horsetail liquid or to just rub it into the skin, depending on how extensive an uh, area you're treating, and to let it dry and stay on. It's not sticky or yucky. Mm-hmm. The idea is that fungal infections are always around us. And that many people have fungal infections but don't have any symptoms. So Mm -hmm. in one way, we know that most fungal infections can't really be cured. They're going to kind of lean back and they may be asymptomatic, but they probably won't ever go away. So it's really important not to hurt yourself while mm-hmm. you're dealing with it and to really nourish yourself. Make sure that you are eating a broad diet, that you're eating cooked or frozen fruits or vegetables. Mm-hmm. That you include some real dairy and some fish and some meat in your diet. Mm-hmm. Um, what kind of spray did you say about the golden seal? That you make a tincture of golden seal and you put it in a mm-hmm. spray bottle and you spray it on. Mm, great. Yeah. You could do that with um, the water-based you know, horsetail, too, if it's an extensive yes. area. I can I can can I get dried horsetail from someone at this point? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Great. Um I do have a question about my 6-year-old son. Yes, what's um, I am just wondering what it is about our mental connection to like stimulation of the sexual organs that um, 
Well, he's he's mildly autistic, but he's also hyperactive. And I also kind of wanted to ask you, I don't understand. I, I There's like two, I get like two definitions of autism. One is that there are parts of the brain that are more active. The other is that there are biochemical processes in the body that are not working optimally and um, they lack in all different kinds of chemicals and poor digestion is on top of all that. So I'm not sure like how one has to do with the other. My son has what? Are you telling me your son has poor digestion? I don't think he does have poor digestion. Oh, I thought you said there's poor digestion on top of all of that. Oh, sorry. Um, no, they. That's why they say they that the autism children should be on a GAPS diet, which is really annoying. But this gluten-free, dairy-free um, diet. Silly, silly. Yeah, it's really ridiculous. It's really ridiculous. Um, more dirt. So they. Yeah, more dirt, definitely. He he gets dirt. I promise. Good. Good. <laughs> Um, he has, you know, he just, like, he when he stims, so he when, can be on the... So when you say yeah. that he's autistic, tell me what you see. Um, he, I see, like, his mental firings are very, like, um, like, um, he's always looking out into space for what, where he's trying to go with his speech, and at the same time, he has to, like, hold himself you know, down low, like, and, um, and, you know, just, it's very interesting to me. <laughs> he frequently um, so holds he, his crotch. Yeah, and he also stims, like, he has a habit of laying on the couch um, and just rubbing and grinding and, you know, going back and forth on the couch, humping the couch, and he can do that for for quite a while, and he just kind of gets tired. Um so I'm so yeah. His room. Does he have a room? Mhm. Mhm. Well, actually, he sleeps on a couch in our room. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. Um, what I think is important is for the environment to be extraordinarily rich. In other words, basically, all the walls and the ceiling should be covered with things. Mm-hmm. Textures, I colors, agree. patterns, pictures, <laughs> stars. <laughs> Is that what's going on? That's our house. <laughs> Good. Good. That's wonderful for him. People tell me that I live with everything out. <laughs> Absolutely marvelous. So... At six, he is old enough to recognize that there are other people in the world. Mm-hmm. He's old enough to have the idea introduced to him that um, there are behaviors that you can do by yourself, there are behaviors you can do with your family, and there are behaviors you can do in public, and they're not all the same. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So... If you're disturbed by something, Mm 
You can also, by the time the child is six, say, it disturbs me when you do this, and I'd like to find another way for you to feel good. Would it be okay with you if I see you doing this, that I say, let's go for a bike ride, or let's go for a walk, or let's go for a swim, or it needs to be something physical and active and moving, right? Moving the pelvis. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He is, he's good at redirection and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, so I'm not sure that a diagnosis ever helps anybody be healthier. <laughs> so I don't something. spend much time with diagnosis. <laughs> right. Right. If you want to say, you know, by way of introduction to professionals, my son is on the spectrum. Mm-hmm. That's something that would be understood, and then we don't have to worry about autism or his brain or what's right. going on. Mm-hmm. And you're drinking nourishing herbal infusions, yes? Yes. And your son is drinking nourishing herbal infusions. He only drinks oat straw. What does he drink? He drinks oat straw. The only other thing he actually drinks is water. I can't get him to drink milk for some reason. Mm-hmm. Grape juice? Grape juice. Sure. Does he drink grape juice? No, he doesn't. He is, uh, I don't. I don't buy it. I, uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Well, grape juice mixed half and half with it, the inf- darker infusions like Nettle or Comfrey is a fairly good way to encourage children to drink the infusions. Oh, great. Mm-hmm. Nice. Yeah. And, you know, as they come to depend on that grape taste, you can put in less grape juice. Oh, <laughs> very good. Yeah. All right, then. I think we have covered it, Yeah. Yeah. Yes, green blessings. Good night. Thank you. Green green blessings. <clears throat> okay, the next caller is coming from the eight four five area code. Yay, hello. Hi. Greetings, ladies. How are you? Enjoying these beautiful late fall days. Wow. It was spectacular today right here off the Glasgow Turnpike. Hi, neighbor. Hi. (laughs) So I would like to say everything wonderful about everything that was discussed tonight, but I, uh, and I did make my yellow dock vinegar. Very exciting. My first time. Yay, you. Oh, I'm doing so many first times, and all of a sudden my creativity is just through the roof. It's What I really do is just waiting, 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 which is so exciting, but I'm building my bones and my brains and my muscles and my tissues, and much, much to my amazement, I owe most of 
my health to you, Susan and Rebecca. Thank you. But it's your hard work that got you there. Well, it is hard work, and the hardest work is just deciding to do it. And then it's so easy. It is almost funny how easy it is, eh? It's almost funny. I watch your videos, and I think, is that what I look like? And I'm like, no, you're, you're like so animated and flowery. I'm just like bada bing, bada boom, you know, like, you know, pour a cup of tea, make whatever. So I've been trimming the plants and making the vinegars, but I've been meditating on all the foods I've been loving of late that make me feel really good. And I've cut out a lot of things that I thought were good for me. Um, A a lot of, uh, well, anyway, it turns out what you talked about tonight in the beginning, the fermented honey, is one of the most richest sources of nitric oxide, which all the dirty plants, seem to love and and I and they have pea strips for this like urine strips and and I, I was just like and they said it gives you so much energy like you just notice the difference and I didn't get to research it enough because I don't like to do that I, I just like to discover my way through these things organically um, if I if I may so I wanted to ask for your expertise because you are such a a medical journal wizard of these topics. So nitric oxide comes from fermented garlic and dirty beets and dirty leafy greens and dirty nuts and seeds. And I'm thinking, this is the stuff I love. Right. Yes. Yes. So what's up with the nitric oxide? Did you ever hear of nitroglycerin? Oh, yes. My mother had to take that with her angina if she got too upset. That's right. So when she got upset, her blood vessels was constricted. Right. And she took nitro to open her blood vessels. Oh, so that's why my heart's been hurting lately. Oh, I never had that feeling in my life. N-O is... Natural nitro. Nitra. Huh. What is nitra? Nitro, nitroglycerin. Oh, right, nitro. It's natural nitro. Is that like an element on the periodic No, no, table? not at all. Nitroglycerin well, is, is a drug that your mother took. All right, so what's... And nitric acid, what you're talking about in beets and leafy greens, is a natural form of that. Nitric, yeah. And it often, like like a lot of things, it's one thing but turns into the nitric oxide. So uh, powerful antioxidant. Yeah. Anti-inflammatory. Yeah. You instantly feel better. It's in almost all of the nourishing herbal infusions. And that, too, because I've really bumped it up. I got, like, the big box so I can afford to do, like, 
you know, the right amount every day, every day, every day. And what a difference. Yes. Huh. All right. So the the fermented honey, I, I really want to try that. I've been spooked by horrible stories of bad bacteria and botulism and crap like that. So, so here's after, the deal. All yeah, honey what? contains botulinus spores. Right, so you don't give it to the newborn babies. Those spores are destroyed by your stomach acid. Babies under one year old do not have enough stomach acid to destroy them. So babies are not allowed to have honey. It's not a concern for anyone over one year old. Right. Fermented honey is called mead. There's no oh, big deal about fermenting the honey. What, what, why, it's why, not like why? fermented honey does any particular thing that I know of, except now it has alcohol in oh. it. Oh, so the definition of mead is something um, fermented in honey? honey? Mead oh. fermented now honey. That's it. what mead oh, is. Oh, okay. Well, I'm on a honey kick lately. Okay. And... um. Oh, the benefits, like, well, I had to have a tooth extracted, so I guess that's why I stopped. So I I had this big bombastic molar that was, like, way up, like, almost into my eye and ear, but on the outside of my sinus cavity, thank goodness. The doctor and the nurse, they just kept, like, jumping. They were jumping with joy. They're, They're like, she's not bleeding, she's not bleeding. And um, I, I said, oh, yeah, it's the yarrow. <laughs> yep, yep. Good I for had, you, good um, for you. Yeah, 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 so I did all that. But um, so um, about the yellow dock and the vinegar, uh, can I just say one one more thing and then um, you can get on to the next callers because yes, I know yes. I take up a lot of time. <laughs> but um um, excuse me. Uh, so you were saying specifically on your video with the yellow dock vinegar uh, that it's not the yellow dock that helps you utilize the um, the the iron, but it's the vinegar. So I thought, well, then why would you say that with that particular video and not just any vin- uh, any vinegar you would make? There's got to be. Something to the yellow dot. I don't think uh, that's what I said. I think what I said is that the vinegar helps right. to extract the iron. Yeah. Right. So in that specific terms, I know there are blood tests that they do, no. especially for newborns. No, that's silly. Forget that's it. iron. Sure. What? There are no blood type diets. No, that's silly. What? What? Are you talking about blood type diets? No, no, I'm sorry. Okay, I thought you said something about blood types. No, uh, um, no, I'm saying um, test. Maybe I did say type uh, test. Oh, okay, you don't mean blood types. No, blood test for iron. Yes, a blood test for iron, okay. I think I I said this once to you before about the uh, possibility of hemochromatosis. I was suspecting, like, high iron levels that could be causing me a little bit of a problem, so, well, a lot of a and problem. is that what you found? 
Well, I never went for the blood test because of the COVID stuff, but um, I, understand. I did. I did stop all my iron-rich foods, which I was on because I was feeling fatigued, and I don't know. I had this idea of pernicious anemia in the back of my head or some weird stuff. But anyway, I just love iron-rich foods. What can I say? I just love them. So anyway, I cut them all out, and I really got a lot better, but I was doing vinegars. So it got me to thinking, like, you know, with the blood test, you know, they say, oh, you're so high in iron, don't ever take an iron pill or whatever. So I'm thinking if I take the vinegar, it utilizes that iron and it doesn't, like, stay stagnant in, in the blood, perhaps. Because That's, I was doing that, great. that is the idea with yellow dots, yes, exactly. Right, because so I was doing great until I ate, like, I just had this craving for raisins and I had, like, a whole cup at a time. And I've been not feeling well since then, about a week now. So then uh, just something told me, make the yellow dock, make the yellow dock. You know, like it was like almost screaming at me, like, make the yellow dock. And it's amazing the way it puffed up in the jar. I'm glad I left enough room. All right. What's fun? Well, any anyway, um, thank you for this discussion. I look forward to your guest tonight. Uh, especially, it sounds very exciting. Rutgers University, go. Yes. <laughs> All right. Cream blessing. Bye. Thanks for the call. Bye. Good night. The next caller is coming from the 504 area code. Hello. Hello. Hi, what's up? Um, hi. So um, I just got some blood work back. Um, a little background is that I have fibroids, and I'm 44. And I haven't had regular periods for a while. So I went and I got, um, like, my follicle-stimulating hormone, estrogen, and all those. And everything came back fine except for my follicle-stimulating hormone levels. And that was increased. And it says that it was increased to the levels of menopause. But estrogen and all the other ones were fine. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't you said sure you didn't have anything. 44. Mm-hmm. And so let me give you a little background. Mm-hmm. Human women make 30 different kinds of estrogen. We start making 29 kinds of estrogen in utero. And we make those 29 kinds of estrogen every single day of our lives, from five months before we're born until the day we die. Mm -hmm. At puberty, the 30th estrogen, estradiol, sometimes called estradiol, starts to be made. And at menopause, that particular estrogen stops being made. So when people say estrogen, we actually have to find out which estrogen they're measuring and what they're talking about. Usually they're talking about estradiol. Yeah, that's what it is. That's exactly what it says, mm-hmm. because it's estradiol. But remember, there are twenty other, 29 other kinds of estrogen in your body. So estradiol okay. um, triggers 
the pineal gland to make follicle-stimulating hormone, which does exactly that. It stimulates. It's the hormone that stimulates the follicles in your ovaries. Okay. And when follicle-stimulating hormone stimulates the follicles, they mature. And when one or more of them bust out of the ovary, they leave behind the yellow body, which now produces luteinizing hormone. Lutein is yellow in Latin, so luteinizing the yellow hormone, which then causes a rise in progesterone. And this allows us to get pregnant. Okay. When we begin our menstrual life and when we end our menstrual life, though that period of years, estradiol is produced in erratic amounts, sometimes even skipping a month or two or more. Okay. Causing erratic bleeding. As okay. we move from menarche into regular menstrual periods, the amount of estradiol that we make each month, and we only make it for 24 to 36 hours each month, is a very dangerous hormone, goes up. And for most women, it peaks by about the age of 30 and then starts to decline. For some women, that is a very long, slow decline, and it will be another 20 years before they start to see the effects of declining estradiol. For other women, that's a steeper cutoff, and they will start to see results sometimes in their late 30s, early 40s, certainly by the age of 44. It is well within the realm of possibility that you are starting menopause. And that's why your follicle-stimulating okay. hormone is elevated. And it's no big deal. You don't need to stop it. All women go through menopause, and it's just fine. And your follicle-stimulating hormone might get higher and higher, and things might get more erratic. But, again, okay. there's nothing wrong. Now, I think okay. you said that you have not had regular periods throughout your life. No, I, I just haven't had them for the past five to six years. Okay, so you, it, it certainly sounds like what I'm describing, yes? Yes. And again, unless, unless it is a problem for you, and it would be a problem for you if you wanted to get pregnant, then it's not a problem. Yes, I do. I do. So you I do want to get pregnant? Yeah, I don't have kids. Okay. The herb that turns back the clock is Vitex, also known as chaste tree, usually okay. taken as a tincture, and large amounts, three or four dropperfuls, three or four times a day. So get some dried chaste tree berries and make your own. If you want to start taking it immediately, you know, buy some from somebody else, because it'll be six weeks before your tincture is ready. But it's, you know, pretty inexpensive and easy to make t- your own tincture. Mm-hmm. And... um I have seen lots of women having very good results from working with Chase Tree. Okay. 
And how how long will it take to start reversing the results? We're not reversing anything. We're simply slowing down the production of follicle-stimulating hormone, making it easier for you to get pregnant. And I do want to remind you that at the age of 44, that there will be a lot of damaged genetic material and that you may get pregnant only to miscarry. And you may get pregnant again only to miscarry again. And if what you want as a child, just keep going. Trust that your body is not going to invest in a pregnancy that isn't worth investing in. Mm-hmm. And it's not your fault that you're miscarrying. It's the healthy functioning of your body that you're miscarrying. Okay. You're drinking nourishing herbal infusions and eating a wide diet? Uh, so I, I just got introduced to you, so I will start. Um, I've just learned about you. So I, I ordered my um, in my um, oat straw and nettle and linden and comfrey. Fabulous. Uh, and you're eating a broad diet. Yes. Um, I do have um, some intolerance to uh, milk, so dairy. So um, yogurt is your best choice. Then. Okay. And you, it can be small amounts, but the smaller the amount, the more consistently. You like, you know, you could do a cup of yogurt every couple of days or a tablespoon of yogurt every day. Okay. Have we covered everything? We have. Thank you so much. Green blessings. I appreciate you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay. You have a question for Susan. Please press one. We just have one more caller in the queue with a question for now. And the next caller is coming from the seven seven three. Oh, your call just oh, dropped. Here. Oh, there you are. No, no, okay, I'm... there you are. Hi. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, Susan. Uh, appreciate you so much. Thank you. Um, okay, so I hurt my Achilles tendon probably um, almost three months ago, I'm guessing, time flies. Uh, and it's sort of walk, but I can walk. It hurts to stand. What I'm doing is drinking comfrey infusion. I uh, dug up some comfrey root, made a poultice that's in the freezer. I take St. John's wort probably two times a day, three droppers full. Motrin, when I remember, I've been doing this melt method thing with these balls on the bottom of my feet and trying and my calves, um, elevating icing, resting as well as I can, but it's so hard to do that part. And um, so the problem is it's just, it seems like it's a long time and I really don't want to go get imaged. Everyone's saying, oh, you got to go get an image and I don't want to. Because I ran out of comfrey, and now I have comfrey again. And I notice when I just do, usually I do all the, the, you know, the rotation of infusions. But now I'm just focusing on comfrey, and it really is making a difference. Um, so my questions are, one, if I can reuse the um, comfrey root poultice. And uh, two is I, 
I ordered, um, accidentally ordered comfrey root, so it's dried root, and I was wondering if I could, I don't know, do something with that, excuse me, and oh, and the other thing is I stir oil, but I haven't been putting it in a flannel, and I don't know if I need to do that, and I've been doing comfrey tallow that I made last year, so that's been really helpful. Mm. Okay, that's a lot of questions. Let's see which of them I remember. (laughs) (laughs) You could use the dried comfrey root um, and boil it up and then make a poultice from it. Oh, great. Excellent. You're making comfrey poultices, right? Yeah. Some people use dried comfrey root in warm oil and keep it warm for days, like in a crock pot, to make a comfrey oil, comfrey root oil. Okay. Would tallow be better? I do have tallow. Tallow would be perfect. Okay, okay. Yeah. Um, and there were lots of other questions. Um, do we need, using castor oil, do I have to wrap it in flannel? Well, and not sure what you mean wrap it in flannel. Are you just putting castor oil directly on your skin? Yes, I've been doing it at night before I go to bed, just like massaging my feet and then rubbing the Achilles with that. And what's the point of that? I thought I heard it was good. I thought, like... Any oil would be good. Castor oil is so icky, sticky, and poisonous. I can't quite get why it would be better. Usually castor oil is poured on a piece of flannel, heated in the oven, and then applied to dissolve cysts. Okay, okay. I'm going to scratch that. But Um, that's what the flannel is about. It's not that the castor oil is wrapped in flannel. It's that that the flannel is saturated with castor oil so that it can be heated uh, and applied. Okay, okay. Um, And usually it's wrapped up in foil when it's put in the oven so it doesn't, you know, combust in the oven. Gotcha. Okay, okay. Right, but then take the foil foil off before you use it, apply it. (laughs) Okay, good tip. Thanks. Right, yes. Can I... um, how but any any kind of oil, like hypericum oil. Okay, I have that. Okay. Yeah. I would say the hypericum oil would be a more direct thing. The comfrey is okay. really excellent. And um, could you tell me a little bit more about the injury? Well, I got it from hiking in the dunes and... Um, and it's sand, so I just, it hurt, and I, you know, oh, my foot hurts, but I didn't really baby it, as I probably should have, and uh, it's just on the edge of, like, it'll... But it's it certainly time. one of the most difficult things with a tendon injury, is that it must be immobilized. And the more okay. that it's used, the worse the healing's going to be. Okay, I'm pushing it too much, and I think it's combined with menopause, just saying slow, slow down. Yeah. Yeah, every time I have injured a tendon, I always immobilize that area for anywhere from four to six weeks. I actually pulled tendons off my kneecaps, and the doctors put me in a cast from my ankle to my hip for three months. Wow. 
immobilize do not use for a long period of time if you want it to heal. Okay, now when you say immobilize, do you mean I could get a boot of some kind? Yes. Okay. All right. Me in bed four to six weeks. Not you in bed, but that area. <laughs> okay, right. good. Um, and then because the tendon is slow to regrow, is what what I was told. Mhm. Okay. It seems like comfrey infusion is the the when I've been drinking that throughout the day, I feel like that's been really that's wonderful. What I usually suggest in this kind of situation is keep on with your other nourishing herbal infusions. Make them your main drink. And just make sure that you get about a cup of comfrey a day. Okay. Okay, great. Yeah. Okay. And then how many times can I use the poultice, reuse it? Oh, you can reuse the poultice over and over again so long as there's no infection. Oh, okay, great. Yeah. You are welcome. Is it swollen? Is it hot? Does cold help? Oh, I've been icing it probably four to five times a day. Um, you can take some help. of that comfrey root, you know, de- rehydrate comfrey root. Dry comfrey root you brought. Rehydrate that with boiling water, right? And then let it cool down, then freeze it and use that as frozen compress. Okay. Instead okay. of ice. How long should I boil it for? Until it gets softish. Okay. You don't have to boil it. You can just... Pour boiling water over it and let it sit for a while. Okay. Okay, great. It's totally up to you. I, every time I try to put an herb up to boil it, I always burn it, so I just don't do that anymore. Okay. Great. Um, yeah, it's just real thick and bulging a little. Um, it's gotten better, but it's it's tender. Yeah. Yeah. Baby it. Okay. Yeah. A hard one, but I will. It is. I know it's a hard one. <laughs> okay. Thank you so much. Thanks for calling. Green blessings. Good night. Green blessings. Good night. Okay. The next caller is coming from the 908 area code. Hi there. Good evening, Susan. How are you? Hi. Okay. Question for you. This is uh, pretty the uh, quick one. Um, so I'm taking uh, stinging nettles, a tincture of that <clears throat> daily, uh, anywhere from two to three times a day. Um, been taking that for about maybe like two weeks or so. Um, taking it for <clears throat> fibroid symptoms as well as li- I'm having some issues potentially with my liver. I'm kind of guessing on that. I don't know for sure, but the fibroids are definite. I'm taking it for that. Um, I'm just wondering if, if it's okay to take shepherd's purse while taking nettles. Is it okay to take those together? Because I was, I was Nettle is shepherd's food. purse for bleeding. Shepherd's okay. purse is medicine. Okay. If you're drinking nettle and you start to bleed and you need to take shepherd's purse, that would certainly be fine. 
but Shepherd's Purse is not preventative. Right. Right. I read that in something. I read that in an article that so you don't that just not take Shepherd's Purse just because you have it on hand. Right. That's what I'm asking. And I'm you asking take it if you need it. And if you've drunk metal that day, it's not it's not like there's some interaction between the metal and the shepherd's purse. Is that what you're imagining? Right. Well, I just wasn't sure if I if I would if I can take because I don't want, I'm not planning. I have no intention to take the shepherd's purse daily, only as needed. Like if I if my if my period comes and it's very heavy, I would just take it at that point. Exactly. But I just wasn't sure if it's okay to do that whilst I'm taking nettles daily. I you're not taking nettle. You're drinking it. Yeah. And yes, you say I'm that drink- you're taking that you're drinking nettle every single day. Well, I'm ta- I'm taking it in a tincture form. So, oh, you're taking metal tincture. I see. And why are you taking yeah. metal tincture? Uh, well, because I was diagnosed with diagnosed with uterine fibroids, and uh, I was recommended to take it to help with the symptoms of that. Is it? I, mean, I can't I'm imagine. First of all, I I never use metal tincture. I just can't imagine what it would be good for. Uh, okay. Uh, well, yeah, I was taking it for that as well as, like, I was having some issues with my liver, and it seems to be helping. Um, but it, it won't I, hurt I mean, you. It's just what's in metal isn't alcohol-soluble. You said it isn't. No. We use tinctures for herbs that contain poisons, that we want to extract the poison and get it in a... In a uh, a way that we can take a tiny amount of it. So we couldn't okay. make poke root stew because we would be in the hospital. But we can dig the poke root and tincture it and then take one drop of that tincture. And that poison acts as a medicine then. I see. But there isn't that kind of thing in metal. Metal is pure food. So we don't want to take it by the drop or the dropper full. We want to take it by the quart. Ah, okay. So it's not so much the nettle, it's the form that I'm taking it. I need to take it in a different, in a different right. form. Right. There's nothing in nettle that would be active in a tincture. Got it. So when you say by the quart, what is that? What do you mean? I like weigh you out do? one ounce of dried stinging nettle. Put it in a quart jar, fill that jar to the top of the boiling water, put a lid on it, and let it steep overnight. The next morning, I strain it, squeezing the nettle, get all the liquid out, put the herb in the compost, put the liquid in the refrigerator, and drink it throughout the day. Okay, and how long does that usually last? Is that like that? Would that last for like a matter of a day, two days? Yeah, a day or two. The ideal okay. is to drink a quart a day. But if you can only drink two cups wow. a day, that's okay. But people get the best results when they stop drinking other things and just drink infusion, and especially when they stop drinking water. Stop drinking water? Please stop drinking water. It's the worst okay. possible thing to drink. Why is that? I mean, I literally drink probably like a half a gallon of water a day. So that's uh-huh. Well, it's really messing you up big time. Why is that? Every single cell in your body is protected by a lipid layer. That's fat. What can you tell me about the relationship between fat and water? 
so they don't mix well. That's right. So every bit of water that you're drinking does not go into your cells, does not hydrate you. All it does is draw down your electrolyte balance and dissolve your bones. Oh, that's not good. No, stop drinking water now. Okay, so are It's the single easiest thing to improve your health is just stop drinking water. So drink nourish, nourishing herbal infusion, drink green tea. Oh, that's what I was going to ask. Okay, you said drink nourishing. What, what was that that I said? Nourishing herbal infusion, what, what I've been talking about all night, what I just told you, one ounce of dried herb in a quart jar, filled at the top of the boiling water, steeped overnight, strained, and then refrigerated, and that quart of nourishing herbal infusion drunk. Nettle is one of the nourishing herbs. And I rotate through stinging nettle, oat straw, comfrey leaf, red clover, and linden. Okay. Okay, so it, it, it's safe to take all of those together? They're foods. Would it be safe to eat rice? Would it be safe to eat corn? Okay, gotcha. Understood. They're food. They're not medicines. They're foods. Okay. That's okay. why we don't take nettle in a tincture form, because it's a food, any more than we would have tincture of carrots. <laughs> That's a good one. Okay. okay. Makes sense. Makes All right. Sense. Yeah. Perfect. Perfect. Yeah. Okay. Wonderful. All right. Well, you've been, you've been very helpful. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. You are welcome. Thanks for your call. Green blessings. Blessings to you. Good night. And we don't have any more callers, but it does look like our guest is here. If you want to go ahead and introduce her. Yes, I will. Okay. Charlotte Markey, Ph.D., is a professor of psychology and the founding director of the Health Sciences Center at Rutgers University in Campton. She's the author of three books, Smart People Don't Diet, How the Latest Science Can Help You Lose Weight Permanently, Body Positive, Understanding and Improving Body Image in Science and Practice, and most recently, The Body Image Book for Girls, Love Yourself and Grow Up Fearless. Dr. Markey writes monthly for U.S. News and World Report in her Eat Plus Run blog, for Psychology Today, her Smart People Don't Diet blog, as well as other publications, focusing on eating behavior, body image, and health. Welcome to the show, Charlotte. Thanks so much for having me. Can you hear me? I can. Okay, good. Right. So um, what motivated you in general to approach this whole subject of body and body image and um, what our culture tells us is an ideal body? Well, I mean, I think it's easy to see as most women's experiences um, include some concern about their body or their weight. Um, So I think like most women, you know, those are things that affected me growing up and more so because I was a ballet dancer. I danced at San Francisco Ballet. And 
you know, the focus on what you ate and your body was really pronounced. So I think it was just sort of part of who I was from a young age and um, how I really started to cope with that was to intellectualize the issues into the, in college, start to study them and come to understand what the science had to say about um, body image and weight issues. So you grew up as a ballet dancer with this intense focus basically on keeping your body, if you were young enough, a girl's body and not letting it become a woman's body basically, right? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, that is the stereotypical ballerina is pretty pretty pubescent looking and um, incredibly slender. Mm -hmm. So that is the focus. And that often leads directly to eating disorders. Yeah, it's pretty common, um, disordered eating in um, ballet and some other areas of dance. So, you know, it's a pretty dysfunctional culture. And I'm interested to know what you think about this. I think more importantly, it leads to a distorted body image. Yeah, I think so in that you know, what is considered appropriate is, you know, incredibly thin. So um, it's really not a focus on health. Um, It's much more a focus on just what is viewed as as looking right for a dancer. Right. The look, how you look to others, not how you feel from the inside. Exactly. It has nothing to do with how you feel or your health. It has very much to do with, um, with the outward appearance. And we are certainly seeing an epidemic of that attitude. With yeah, most obviously. ordinary people thinking that they need plastic surgery. Right. And, right, it's not at all just confined to the dance world. No. Um, there's, uh, I think, you know, as, as eating disorder and body image researchers have been saying for almost 30 years, um, body dissatisfaction is normative among girls and women and increasingly among boys and men. So, you know, one of my goals in doing this research and then also trying to make the research accessible to a more public audience is to stress that this shouldn't be normative. Being dissatisfied with your body does not have to be normal or normative. In fact, um, it's really maladaptive. It's unhealthy psychologically and physically. And we really want to work on, I think, especially young girls growing up feeling good about themselves and not feeling like they need to restrict themselves from enjoying food. Yes. And I think that for many girls, certainly in my life, I was very comfortable in my body. My body and I just did whatever we wanted to do. And then I came to puberty, and suddenly the adults had all these new rules about what I could and couldn't do with my body. (laughs) That is certainly one way to put it. Yes, I think that that's very common. It's part of why we see um, body dissatisfaction increase dramatically during the adolescent years. I mean, puberty causes dramatic changes in um, both boys and girls' bodies, but for girls, it moves them farther away from what's considered ideal socioculturally. And then, as you said, there are other standards, and there's a lot more commentary about the body as it's becoming an adult body. Right. And not not just how it looks, 
but what I was allowed to do, how I was allowed to sit, what I was allowed to wear. I'm, yeah, I'm actually, still, I still remember, you know, the shock that I felt when these new rules were laid on me. I actually talk about um, clothing in, in the book a little bit because clothing, there's some research to suggest, is really a proxy in some ways for deeper issues. So when parents um, are trying to limit um, clothing choices or have concerns about what girls are wearing, a lot of times what they're really having concerns about is them getting older, them getting more independent, them becoming sexual beings, them potentially being viewed sexually or romantically by other people. So um, clothing seems like a really superficial issue, but it can be quite complicated. Yes, yes. No, I don't think it's superficial at all. I think it's um, perhaps not as important as it might have been 100 years ago when you literally judged a person and their worth on who had who had created their clothing. Mm-hmm. Um, um, but it's still um, a very powerful signal that yeah. we have, and especially for a teenager, an area of self-control. Yes. My sure. ultimate reaction to all of that was to choose one green A-line dress and refuse to wear any other clothing. How did that work for you? It worked very, very well for me because it made a very big statement to everybody around me that I was um, not going to fulfill their desires. Mm-hmm. Meaning that you were um, you are assuming control of of your appearance, I, I'm your body. I'm assuming control, and it is going to be for me and not about what you want. Now, I've, I saw other girls go totally the other way, right? Started dressing, right. you know, with exaggerated sexualness. Uh huh. Uh huh. To put out the same message, but. But my message was more, I'm going to do it my way and don't bother me. Not, I'm going to do it my way and so come and get me. <laughs> right, right. Well, that seems fairly adaptive to take control in that way. Yeah. Um, but yes, I but think. How horrible you know, that I had to do that. Really, you well, know. Because it was, you know, this big dump of rules at that place. So. I know that in places where television is introduced, that the rate of eating disorders rises very, very rapidly. Yeah, so the classic research examining that phenomenon was conducted by Ann Becker and colleagues in Fiji um, in the 1990s. And, you know, I don't know that it's been replicated since then, um, in part because, you know, TV is much more pervasive now, especially with smartphones bringing you everything these days, um, nearly everywhere in the world. But I do think that, you know, the, the exposure to any kind of media, it introduces some challenges for especially developing 
um, boys and girls in terms of thinking about their bodies and their appearances and what they want to look like, what they should be looking like, how other people view them. Um, all these sort of issues do seem to coalesce in um, the adolescent years. Do you offer any suggestions that can be helpful for young women? Yeah, I mean, the, sorry, go ahead. I said who are exposed to all of this? In terms of the media? Yeah. Yeah, we have nearly a, a chapter in the Body Image Book for Girls that focuses on the media and perceptions of your own image and is really a focus on media literacy because I think – you know, I do suggest avoiding the media to a certain extent, but it's nearly impossible for for us all to completely avoid the media. So that's not a completely practical recommendation. Instead, I think that media literacy is just incredibly important for young people to appreciate that a lot of the media is about selling them something that most of the imagery they see has been manipulated in a variety of ways, that it's not an accurate representation of reality. Um, and so girls need to really think about then um, if the media is actually presenting something that they want to try to aspire to. And, you know, my hope is that they, the takeaway is, no, they don't necessarily want to. And I spent um, a fair amount of time in different sections of the book also talking about how, you know, the more we invest in our appearance, the less we can invest in other things because we all have a limited amount of time and energy and resources. And so it's not to say that we can't or shouldn't spend some time um, taking care of our appearance, but just that too much time then can become a real distraction from perhaps more important things. Yes, I recently attended an online conference about um, preventing Alzheimer's disease. Mm -hmm. And there were a wide variety, over 30 different professionals interviewed mm -hmm. this. And it was quite fascinating to me um, the difference between those who seem to take quite a lot of care with their appearance and those who seem to say, this is how I am. Yeah, I think that there's a lot of variability, and I don't, um, I really... And they were all brilliant scientists. Yeah, I don't think it's necessarily helpful um, to be judgmental about that. So I really tried to take great care in my writing for girls to not suggest that there's just one right or one wrong way to think about this. I think that um, some people are going to be more comfortable um, tending to their appearance more than others. Um, but I do think it's just important to kind of know that in spending time on our appearance, you're, you're giving up time for something else. So, um, mm, yes. That's, that's certainly, you know, what has driven many of my self-care rituals is how am I going to spend my time? Yeah, I think it's a, sort of an important point that girls especially don't hear often enough. That, and when know, I was advertising an hour a week, getting my hair done was quite reasonable expenditure of time, but it certainly isn't now. 
Yeah. And I think that oftentimes as women age, they very consciously make these choices that it's not as important to them anymore to spend time on certain things. So how does food fit into all of this? Well, obviously what we put into our bodies affects how we feel about our bodies. Um, That's both a physical and a psychological relationship. Um, So I do spend a few chapters in the book focused primarily on food, making sure that young people appreciate sort of some of the basic nutritional science because very often um, in the media there's discussion and um, misinformation, frankly, about, I think, nutrition. So, um, you know, my advice is pretty straightforward to to eat balanced meals, to eat a variety of foods, to not be restrictive, to enjoy food. Um, you know, I spend a fair amount of time trying to explain why, you know, food should be a pleasure in life. And it shouldn't be something that causes a lot of angst. And unfortunately, it does for a lot of people. Yes, I don't actually think we're designed to think about what to eat. Because our ancestors never had to think about what to eat. They just had to think about, is there something to eat? (laughs) Yeah, I think that's a really fair point. I think that, you know, we can spend a lot of time and energy on food, um, and for some people, that's, you know, close to a hobby that they really enjoy that. And I'm not sure there's anything wrong with that, but I also don't know that it's necessary. I think that most of us know, um, you know, vegetables are generally healthier than fried food, for example. Like, this isn't overly complicated. No, it's not really complicated, is it? Whole Foods says it, right? Or, as I'd say to people, shop the perimeter of the store, only go down the the aisle that has animal food and toilet paper and no other aisles are allowed. (laughs) Yeah. I think most nutritionists are registered dietitians. Because all of the real food is on the perimeter of the store. Right. Yeah, and most of us can afford to eat more of that, right? More fruits, more vegetables, um, more whole foods. And more whole foods, more eggs, more dairy, more meat, more fish, more whole grains. You, they're all, you can find them all on the perimeter of your store. Yeah, they're not always as convenient or um, as exciting as some of the more uh, prepackaged items. And so there's been some movement away from um, kind of simpler eating, I think, but... That's unfortunate and not necessarily good for our health. And I see a direct connection between eating well and feeling well about your body. Yeah, absolutely. No matter what it looks like, I want to say. And I really do mean no matter what it looks like. Because I see that people who eat basically whatever is easy and convenient without any particular thought to it, generally don't have 
a lot of self-respect. And if I can encourage them to respect themselves more, that spills over into, if I respect myself more, I need to feed myself better. Yeah, I sometimes like to say that food is really a primary source or a primary means of self-care. Self-care is thought of as this really trendy idea these days that you need, um, you know, certain kinds of chemicals or face masks or whatever to to engage in self-care. But we feed ourselves multiple times a day every day, and that's really the most basic form of self-care. Taking good care of yourself is, is feeding yourself well. And framing in that way is really important for us psychologically, not to be thinking about it as this complicated or potentially kind of punishing um, activity we engage in, but something that's nourishing and important for us both psychologically and physically. I ate out last night. Now, a year ago, that would not have been a remarkable statement, but it's a remarkable statement in November of 2020, and it was a remarkable activity. For me, I think the last time I ate out was last February. And was it enjoyable? What did you eat? It was very enjoyable, and part of the enjoyment was that there were a lot of other people around me. Now, the law here in New York is that the restaurant can only be at 25% of capacity, so we were well spaced out. Mm -hmm. But still, there were other people there. And it's not like I eat all my meals alone. I eat some meals, mm-hmm. and that's fine with me. But there's always at least one meal a day when I'm with other people. But it was, it was even an added enjoyment in having those other people that I didn't know eating with me. Well, I think that's something many of us are missing right now because food is incredibly social for many of us. And it's unfortunate that we can't share meals with people in quite the same way we, we used to, and hopefully we will be able to again in the not-so-distant future. But, um, you know, eating out isn't necessarily just about the food. Um, I've come to find since the pandemic began that I desperately miss eating out, but I don't think it has much at all to do with what I'm eating. I think we've been making wonderful food at home, so it's not really about the food. It's about the outing. It's about the time with other people. Um, and about the experience, having a, a meal that doesn't require your preparation or your cleanup can be very nice as well. <laughs> That's what my sweetheart says. My sweetheart says, everyone, everyone would cook all meals for themselves if the dirty dishes and pots and pans miraculously got cleaned. <laughs> and if someone brought in the groceries. And, you know, the thing is, there's a, there's a lot of... I really like the shopping. You like the shopping. The shopping part is quite, quite exciting. And, of course, the meals that we serve here at the Wise Women's Center, the people shop nature. Mm-hmm. So they might sit down to a meal of nettle soup when they've harvested the nettle, and I've boiled it. And if I want to make it fancy, I'll throw a few dried mushrooms in it that we've harvested here on the land. And then we'll go out and we'll harvest greens for a salad and we'll have anywhere from a dozen to two dozen different greens in the salad and they'll have spent time with me and the goats and they'll have cheese made from the goat's milk 
as well as some whole grain bread made locally. And it's a very, very simple meal. And I see people being so fed with self-worth that they're eating what they, they harvested and turned into food. Well, I think the whole experience can be very rewarding for people in contexts like that. I think that um, depending on what your life allows, how much time you have and how you prioritize the activities you engage in, it can be, you know, difficult to spend um, that much time and energy on food preparation for some people, especially if you have children at home, you're homeschooling these days and complicated life in part due to um, restraints introduced by the pandemic. But um, I think, you know, I think important if you have school children that you're homeschooling to go out and harvest wild plants with them. Children are natural learners in nature and there are no hyperactive children in nature. And it's wonderful to see them teach each other. And again, they get that tremendous feeling of self-worth when they eat what they've harvested. I think there's no better homeschooling activity. And you don't have to create a whole meal. If you go out and harvest one plant that's added to your food, you'll see it shining in your children's eyes. Well, I think it's wonderful when when kids learn to appreciate where their food comes from and and how to prepare it. That's you know, a life lesson that can serve them very well. And it's certainly something I know we've worked on a bit around here, even if we're not growing it all successfully. We are certainly, um, you know, taking more turns in preparation because oh, it's just necessary <laughs> Everyone knows to make Dandy things Lion. work. <laughs> Dandelion's an easy one to fit in as a wild thing. I want to make sure that everybody knows that they're listening to Charlotte Markey P. H-D. And you can find her at charlottemarkey.com. That's C-H-A-R-L-O-T-T-E, like the spider, Charlotte. Markey, M-A-R-K-E-Y, markey.com. Or the website, The Body Image Book for Girls.com. Oh, you talk about what we wear, and how much that matters. Can you tell me a little more about that? Well, I think some of the research I find particularly interesting on this topic has to do with how clothing can prove to be distracting to people, especially women. And there's some research suggesting that Um, In controlled laboratory settings, that women who have been asked to wear something that's more revealing or uncomfortable um, actually cannot participate and engage in tasks that require concentration, as well as individuals who are wearing clothes that are comfortable. And so sort of the the take-home message from that is that if you're wearing something that's uncomfortable to you, kind of actually common sense, and yet I think we forget about this, that can be a real distraction, and it can keep you from being able to operate to your best ability, um, whether that be focusing on something or um, interacting with whoever you're trying to have a conversation with or 
um, trying to do something academic or intellectual. So um, the, the take-home message really is that comfort, I think, is pretty important in what we wear. That is exquisite. Thank you. It's one of our few yoga rules, which is if you're always twitching and tacking and adjusting it, don't wear it to yoga. Yes, and I think that that rule could extend to most of our lives, right? right? Um, so, um, and it's not meant to be an anti-fashion sentiment by any means. Um, I, I believe you can look wonderful and be comfortable at the same time, and that it's worth investing some energy to, to, to get that sort of combination of factors. I think it's a, it's a hard lesson for young girls in particular to learn because so much marketing targets them and suggests the importance of wearing certain things that are revealing, that are uncomfortable. Um, and so, I don't know, maybe most of us need to learn that lesson the hard way. You know, you only wear uncomfortable shoes on a long walk once usually, and then you just don't do that again. Charlotte, when I was 17, I had jeans that were so tight, I had to lie down on the floor to put them on. I'm sure you are not the only one. I have heard now this before. That is what my culture <laughs> taught me, was that in order to be attractive, I had to be in pain from my clothes. And you know better now. I re- you know, I, I remember when we burned our bras. Woohoo! You know, and I came home with my first L.L. Bean boots, and my husband looked at them and said, those are awfully ugly. And I bet they were comfortable. And I said to him, get used to it. Yep. You know, and again, I don't think it has to be ugly, you know. No, it doesn't have to be ugly, for goodness sakes. But that was his judgment about it, right? Yeah. In your book, The Body Image for Girls, you have a section with a great title, Myths and Misbeliefs. Tell us a little bit about that, please. Well, as I mentioned, I think before, there's a lot of misinformation and, I mean, really straight out just lies about nutrition and our bodies and health. And oftentimes what's sort of the the sexiest is what sells. And I don't mean the sexiest literally. I mean sort of the most outlandish. Um, And so the myths and misbeliefs sections throughout the book are my attempt to try to shed light on some of those things and make sure that young people understand that, for example, carbohydrates are not evil um, that you can eat chocolate, it does not cause acne. Um, so there's, you know, a, a variety um, of myths that I try to tackle. Um, perhaps a really important one is just that being comfortable with who you are is nothing to be embarrassed about. You don't have to feel um, bad if you feel good and you say such, such things. Um, and also, that there's no value in shaming other people for how they look, that it's not going to change their behaviors. There's sort of this tough love myth oftentimes that, you know, if you just tell people they need to do whatever, that they, they will listen. Um, instead, they're just usually very insulted. Mm. Yes. <clears throat> Do you think that the pandemic is 
somehow adding to what I've certainly seen over the past 50 years as a growing problem with people just not liking their bodies? Well, the pandemic has forced people to change a lot of their habits and some may be for the better and some are probably for the worse. And I think just the, the forced change for many people has been difficult. We've seen, um, you know, some mental health consequences across the board. So not just in terms of body dissatisfaction or eating disorders, but also in terms of anxiety and depression and suicidal ideation. So I do think that the mental health fallout of the pandemic will probably be long-term. And I can only hope that our attention turns to mental health issues more than ever before in the months ahead. And as we recover from these months of the pandemic, because I think that there still is a fair amount of stigma in terms of getting treatment for mental health issues and it may be that a majority of people are suffering from mental health issues before we're out of this. And why I certainly don't hope that to be the case. It would, it would potentially move us away from stigmatizing mental health issues when they start to become, I think, more familiar to more people. So we also have seen a movement towards more telehealth and mental health treatment via phone or Zoom. And I think that could be a real positive development when all is said and done if, if access to mental health services increase for a wider range of people. Um, so I do think there will be lasting effects in a variety of, of areas, but, but being a psychologist, mental health is one, of course, that I'm concerned about. All right. Um, Next to the last question, what are some skills that girls can develop so that they can be fearless? Well, I think that girls really need to become accepting of themselves and accepting of other people. And I offer some tips throughout the book in terms of trying to reach a state of acceptance. It's not to say that this is something that's easy or that our culture necessarily supports very well. Um, But in order to really go out into the world and be fearless and accomplish all sorts of things, we can't be held up worrying about our hair or our shoes um, or the size of our bums, right? We need to be able to um, worry less about a lot of that. Yes. Now, for that last question, thank you so much, Charlotte Markey being with me tonight really appreciate everything that you're doing and such a strong support that you're offering for all women and girls who are in the continual process of finding ourselves and being ourselves and being all that we can be Agreed. I thought it's my goal. And yes. thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk about it. Yes, thank you so much for doing that. And what would you like to leave in the hearts and the minds of everybody who's been 
listening tonight? Well, I think that even though these are trying times, they are times that we will step through. I want people to feel inspired that there are better days ahead and there are um, lots of support systems out there. As I just said, there's, there are great opportunities via telehealth and um, many psychologists and social workers that are available in a variety of modes now. So, so if you're struggling during this pandemic, I hope that, that people reach out, look for resources, and don't be afraid to ask for help. I think that culturally we aren't always good at encouraging that, but we all need help sometimes, whether it be about our eating or our body image or mental health more generally. Um, asking for help is, is an important part of getting to know ourselves and, and oftentimes connecting with others. Thank you, Charlotte and Marky, and thank you, Rebecca, and thank you, Justine, and thank you, everybody who's listening. Together, we are reweaving the healing cloak of the ancients and restoring herbal medicine to its rightful place as people's medicine. Green blessings. Good night. Good night, everyone. Thank you.